So we're going to be starting a new sermon series this week, uh, and we're going to be focusing in this series on various biblical figures, people in Scripture, uh, and drawing forth lessons from their lives. And so that's the series that we're going to be starting uh, today, and today we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, and what we're going to see as we look at his life, just kind of telling you where we're going with this, this sermon, as we look at the life of Joseph, what we're going to see and, and draw forth as the lesson from his life, it, it is that God takes bad stuff and he works it or turns it for good. He takes the bad and works it for good. That's what we're going to see in the life of, of Joseph here. And I want us, we're going to read quite a number of passages, the whole story of sort of the life of Joseph. It's pretty long. We can't quite look at all of it. So I'll sort of highlight some, some parts of it. We'll read uh, still a good, a good chunk of his, his life, the story of his life, but I'll kind of also quickly summarize some parts so that we can actually make it through the whole story. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37 at verse 12 and read through to verse uh, 36. So let's read it. Let's look at the life of Joseph and see God working in this way, turning bad into good, working bad stuff for good. So verse 12 in chapter 39 of Genesis, it says, now his brothers, his brothers, speaking of Joseph's brothers, uh, now his brothers had gone to graze their flock, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send them to you, send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he, so he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here. The man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. So I just want to pause here and give us a little bit of the background of, of this story uh, of Joseph. Why, you know, why are his brothers like, oh, here comes that dreamer, that Joseph, let's plot to kill him. You wouldn't normally expect that of brothers with regard to, to one of their brothers. Uh, but the reality was uh, Joseph was sort of the favorite child of, of their father, all of the brothers. Joseph was the favorite. So his brothers didn't really love that. They sort of uh, we're already a little bit bitter toward him. We don't like that he gets all the special treatment, the special robe, right? When we think of Joseph, we think of that sort of, you know, uh, that, that ornate robe of his that his father gave to him as his favorite child. And you can imagine being one of the other brothers and being a little bit bitter over it. But then just sort of to make matters worse, uh, Joseph has sort of these dreams. This is all earlier in the, this chapter. He has these dreams and they're sort of one in the same dream, really, in regard to what the dream means. And in effect, the meaning of the dream is uh, that of Joseph's brothers bowing down to him. And again, if you're one of his brothers, you're probably thinking, Joseph, I don't like you. I already didn't like you because you're the favorite, and I'm just sort of bitter and jealous about that. And now you're going to come up and tell me you had these dreams, and they're all about us, your brothers, just bowing down to you like you're just the greatest, and we're all beneath you, bowing before you. Yeah, yeah, we're done with you, Joseph. We'd sort of like you out of our lives. 
right? So they see him in the distance, and before he reached them, reading on here, verse 18, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. In the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So now I'll kind of give a quick version of sort of the next little part of the story before we get to chapter 41. Uh, that we'll read. So we see here that, okay, the Midianites took him to Egypt. They sold him to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Uh, so here he's one of Potiphar's slaves, uh, servants, uh, and God causes everything he, he does, everything Joseph does to sort of to prosper, to flourish. Uh, so Potiphar's like, hey, you know, everything you do, it's just, it's golden, it's successful. I'll put you in charge of my whole household. Uh, so he does that and, and everything just sort of thrives and Everything's going well, but, but Potiphar's wife sort of has an eye for Joseph. Joseph's a little bit of a looker, a handsome uh, man, and so she decides, you know what, I, I want to sleep with him. So she sort of makes a move, and Joseph's like, no, 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 no. H how could I do this to my master? He's been so good to me. Put me over his whole household. How, how could I ever do that? He's like, no, won't have anything to do with that. And, you know, day after day after day, she continues to say, sleep with me, sleep with me. Uh, until finally, one day, she just grabs a hold of, of his cloak uh, and says, you know, come to bed with me, sleep with me. And he's like, I'm out of here. Like, pew, he's, he's out of the room. He's gone. I want nothing to do with this. Like, you're holding on to my cloak. I'll leave it behind. I'm out. You know, I don't want anything to do with this. 
Uh, so she's now got his cloak in, in her hands and she's, you know, figures, uh, you know, clearly he's just not going to sleep with me. I'm upset. I'm bitter about this. I'll sort of get back at him. So, you know, she winds up going and telling her husband, oh, here's what happened and tells quite the tale, fabricates a story. You know, uh, that servant of yours, Joseph, he came in, he tried to, to sleep with me and I just, I screamed, you know, he tried to have his way with me and he just, he bolted when I screamed and he left his cloak right here, you know, and he believes his wife, you know, you can't totally blame Potiphar. He kind of figures that he, he trusts his wife. And so he decides, I'm going to throw this guy in jail. Like, I, you know, he tried to make a move on my wife. He, I'm, I'm done with him. Forget having him over my household. I'll toss him into prison. Uh, so that's what he does. And so there, uh, Joseph's in prison. And while he's there, uh, Pharaoh winds up becoming uh, upset with his chief cupbearer and chief baker. Probably, we can kind of like try to read between the lines a little bit, probably someone tried to poison Pharaoh and who would be sort of the likely suspects, well, the chief cupbearer, chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Uh, and so they're tossed into prison, and while they're there, they have these dreams. Uh, and Joseph is able to interpret them. And sort of like in a nutshell, uh, for the cupbearer, it's like, hey, in just a few days, you'll be fine. It's going to go well with you. You'll be reinstated as, as chief cupbearer. You'll be good. You'll be golden. Everything will be good. Uh, you know, um, so then the, the chief baker's like, ooh, that sounds like a good interpretation. Let me tell you mine. It, it, surely it's going to be a good interpretation for me as well for this dream. And Joseph's like, mm, yours is like not so good for you. In a few days, you'll wind up being hanged, being executed. Uh, and that is indeed what comes to pass. Uh, and so then we come to Genesis chapter 41. And we're going to read here the whole chapter, starting at verse 41. It says, at the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up from one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump full ones. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. When morning came, he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief, chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us, and each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, weak, very sickly and thin, came up. I've never seen such sickly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. Then the thin, sickly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. When they had devoured them, you could not tell that they had devoured them. Their appearance was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed the seven good ones. I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, sickly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven worthless, scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, Can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and servants called out before him, Make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest, of on, priest at On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance 
like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest at On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told all Egypt, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Now the famine had spread across the whole region, so Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. Right, and then if we continue the story on, we have right Jacob and, and Joseph's brothers, and they're over in Canaan, and, and the famine has impacted there as well. And so they realize, well, there's this food in Egypt, so why don't we go there, right? Why starve to death here? Let's go over there and see if we can go and, and purchase some food. So, so Joseph's brothers do go, and, and, and they go to purchase food. And I'll kind of try to make a long story here a little bit short, but Right? Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He kind of like puts them through the ringer a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, right, they're sort of all brought back together, reunited. Uh, his whole family comes to live in, in Egypt with him, his brothers, Jacob as well. And as the whole family, they come to dwell and live in Egypt in this food there. And, and they flourish, of course. Uh, and then we get to, to chapter 50. Right at this point now, right they're they're living in Egypt, and Jacob has now just passed away. He's just died. Uh, we're in Genesis fifty, and we're going to read verses fifteen through twenty-one. It says, "When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him.'" Right? They're sort of thinking maybe Joseph was just nice to us for our dad's sake, like. He didn't want to rock the boat with dad still around. But once dad's gone and he is gone, he's dead, maybe he's going to pay us back. So they're sort of concerned about that. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, right? And I want to go back and reread verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, right? What is he saying? You did this terrible thing. You intended it as evil, right? I, I, I'm your brother, your own flesh and blood, and, and yet you treated me horribly, did this terrible, bad thing to me. You, you sold me into slavery. You're going to kill me at first, but then you said, oh, let's just sort of sell him into slavery, right? And you did this horrible thing. You meant it as evil, 
right? But, but God allowed that to happen, and, and in allowing that to happen, his plan from the beginning was to, to take that bad thing that you did and work it for good. And indeed, that's what God did and brought about. You meant it for evil, but he, he allowed it to happen and planned for it to be worked for good, and he did. And he even sort of specifically says how he worked it for good. You meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, right? You did this terrible thing, right? It was awful, it was bad, but God turned it for good, worked it for good, right? If this hadn't taken place, if you hadn't done this, I never would have gone to Egypt. I would never have been there, right? In the series of events that progressed, getting tossed into prison where then I could interpret dreams and then ultimately being brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dream and then giving him the advice of sort of how to respond to these years, the years of famine that would be coming, but also the plentiful years before that, such that then I was set over all of Egypt, second in command, and sort of carried out that plan to store up all of the grain, so that then when those years of famine would come, now there'd be all the stored up grain so that people would have food to eat, right? If you hadn't sold me into slavery, that that all of that, that would not have happened. He would have just been still hanging out over in Canaan with his brothers who didn't like him very much. Uh, the famine would have hit, and people all over the place would have perished. That would have been how things would have played out otherwise, right? But God allowed this terrible thing to happen to him, and he worked it for good, right? His being sold into slavery by his brothers ultimately resulted in him being in this position to interpret uh, Pharaoh's dream, to carry out this plan that, that there might then be food throughout the famine, that many people, a great many people throughout Egypt and the surrounding lands as well might, might then have food to eat and their lives would be spared throughout this famine. And not just a great many people, but even specific people. Think of Joseph, his brothers, his, his father, right? They're included in that. They likely might have perished as a result of the famine as well. Even think of for, for Joseph in a personal way, how God took this bad thing that was done to him and worked it for good. I mean, he's like second in command. He's second only to Pharaoh in, in all of Egypt, right? Uh, and so God has worked this terrible, awful thing in the life of, of Joseph for great, abundant good for Joseph, for Joseph's family, uh, Jacob and, 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 and Joseph's brothers, but indeed for, for all the people of Egypt and the lands around that, that lives might be spared Throughout these seven years of famine, God took that awful thing and worked it for good. And this is just who God is. He does this time and time again. Uh, we see it in Scripture. I'll sort of highlight some examples from, from Scripture, but also just even outside of Scripture where we just see God working in this way where bad stuff happens and yet God turns it for good. He works it for good. Uh, you could come up with plenty of examples, but, but the one I'll highlight elsewhere from, from Scripture is the example of Paul the Apostle uh, and his time under house arrest in Rome. Paul was arrested, he was under house arrest, sort of kept uh, not in a deep, dark dungeon somewhere, but sort of under house arrest. That's a good way to put it. Sort of, you can't leave this place, you're under arrest, awaiting trial, but you can sort of at least have freedom within the walls of your house, which is not a lot of freedom, but better than being in a dungeon. Uh, and he was there for, for some time, and you could look at that and say, well, that, that's not a good thing. Nobody wants to be imprisoned under house arrest or whatnot. And yet God worked it for good, right? It was during this time uh, that, you know, if you're under house arrest, you have a little bit more time to maybe do things. You're not busy traveling around all, of the, all over the place. So you have time to sort of write some letters. Uh, also, because you can't travel around everywhere if you want to go and encourage churches that you've established and planted, well, you can't go to them to, to edify them. You have to write to them. So it's during this time that he writes the prison epistles, which are Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
Uh, and again, he, he wrote those letters. Yes, you can think of sort of so the, the positive, the good that comes out of this. Yes, it was good for those churches. He was able to edify them as he wrote to the Ephesian church, Philippian church, right, Colossian church, and, and edified them. But again, think of the impact, the good impact throughout history. Of This is scripture, right? This was not just Paul writing. He was writing, but it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it was having this, in this time of house arrest, when he sort of had a little extra time to pen some letters, that God used this for amazing good. Good. This bad time, in a sense, of, of being under house arrest, used it for incredible good, such that he penned these, these letters that are a part of Scripture, not just to edify those churches they were initially written to, but to edify Christians for over, you know, for, for 2,000 years, and not just Christians, but, but even in those letters as he presents the gospel, you know, how many people over 2,000 years have read that, and, and as Paul has explained the gospel message, have, have come to faith in Christ and been, been saved, forgiven, right? This is just a huge positive impact impact through the writing of those letters, a positive impact over 2,000 years. That's the reality of that. And so we see, again, a bad thing. Here's Paul under house arrest, not, not what you want to see, especially if you're sort of known for going all over the place, planting churches, going everywhere with your missionary work. And yet God used that time for good, allowing him to be able to write those letters that have, have just had such an impact on Christians and, and those who sort of sought after truth and came to faith in Christ through them, just a huge positive impact. Uh, but not only that, uh, as that's part of the positive impact, uh, but as well also scripture talks about during this time of his house arrest, even though he wasn't able to go out and just sort of, oh, I'll just sort of tour Rome and do whatever I want. He was sort of stuck in that house. But while he was there, people would just come to him day after day after day, Right? They sort of heard about this Paul guy, kind of a big deal. I want to hear, what, what does he have to say? And so people were just flocking to him, going to where he was under house arrest. And, and there just day after day, he just preached about Christ, preached the gospel message. And so you have people who aren't saved. I want to find out what this Paul's all about and hearing the gospel message and, and many people coming to faith in Christ. You can imagine as well Christians coming to hear him just to, 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 to be edified in their faith and to be challenged to grow as well. So again, God taking that time, but working it for good as well. Uh, Paul also speaks of, as he's writing to the Philippians, one of those, those prison epistles, he talks about how his imprisonment there in Rome, how that has sort of encouraged and sort of spurred on other Christians in Rome to share the gospel all the more boldly and faithfully and fearlessly. Again, further positive impact of, of this bad thing that happened. He's under house arrest, but he's saying God's, God's using this for good. And, and other brothers and sisters in Christ here in Rome are just being spurred on because I'm in chains. They're spurred on to, to go and faithfully proclaim the gospel more and more and boldly and fearlessly. And so here's God taking a bad thing and, again, working it for good. Looking outside of Scripture, too, uh, one of the things I think of, again, you could just come up with example after example after example, but one that sort of really came to mind for me and I wanted to share about is thinking of sort of the, the life of the early church uh, and the reality of, of martyrdom, that, that Christians were persecuted and, and heavily in the life of the early church. Uh, and many were killed for, for their faith. They remained firm. They weren't going to waver and, and sort of recant and turn away from Christ. They remained faithful to the end, and, and many lost their lives uh, for their faith. And the reality is that, that that's, of course, that's the bad thing. That's terrible. That's awful. We have these Christians being killed just for their faith in Christ. But God took that and worked it for good. Uh, through that martyrdom of a great many Christians, the church just sort of exploded in number, like exponential growth. That's just a matter of fact of, of sort of the history of the early church. 
Uh, and you can sort of imagine how this took place here. You have, uh, of course, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but even just sort of thinking on a practical level, you have these Christians being killed for their faith. And while plenty in the Roman Empire might look at them and say, oh, those Christians, we don't like them, they're terrible. A lot sort of looked at the Christians and couldn't help but, but be impressed. Like, here were these people who weren't going to waver in what they believed, and they were faithful to the end. Even when, when death was what was staring them in the, faith, in the face, they weren't going to waver in their faith. They weren't going to turn away from their God. And so you couldn't help but sort of be impressed by them, won over a little bit, and then also wonder sort of like, what is it about these Christians? And what is it about, about their faith and, and what they believe? such that they're willing to die for. Like, I, I got to find out about that. Like, there's got to be something remarkable about them, about what they believe, such that they're willing to die for it. Let me go and find out about that. It, it's sort of drawing me in. And, and that was a reality. And, and many were drawn in and, and considered Christianity and came to faith in Christ. And so even as Christians are being put to death in great numbers, immeasurably more through that were coming to faith in Christ. And in fact, from sort of that, that period of, of time in the early church, we have a quote. It's actually sort of a misquote of, of Tertullian, who's an early church father. Uh, this was written around like 200 AD. It's usually quoted, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's sort of the common phrase that you maybe hear. What he actually literally said or, or wrote uh, is this. He said, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is seed right? It's sort of whenever you mow us down, whenever you kill us, you put us to, to death. It's like we multiply nonetheless. For every one you put to death, several come to faith in Christ, and we just keep growing and growing. In sort of a, a metaphorical sense, it's like the blood of Christians is this seed, in a sense, that yields this even greater crop and harvest of Christians that, again, for every one you kill, many more come to faith in Christ. And that was just sort of the reality of how things were working in, in the life of the early church. A bad thing, the death of Christians just for their faith in Christ, yet God using it for good for the building up of his church in a huge, huge way. Uh, even just to think of, of another story that I want to share, a story that relates to, to New Hope Chapel here, to people at New Hope Chapel. I want to share, I have Andre and Jan's permission. They're okay with this. It's not like I'm just mentioning it and hopefully they're fine with it. Uh, I talk to them, they're fine. But, but sort of the story of how Andre and Jan came to, to know one another and meet and hit it off and ultimately get married. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, some of you may not be. Uh, but the story of how they got together really starts with sort of a tragedy. It started with uh, Jan's brother, Donnie, who was in the Marine Corps. Um, he, he tragically died. Uh, Andre was his fellow Marine. They were like best friends. Uh, Donnie and Andre were on sort of a, a training mission. Uh, they were in like kind of deep swampy area, uh, and tragically, Donnie wound up drowning in the swamp. Uh, so this is a horrible thing, tragic, again, a bad thing, but a bad thing that God wound up using for good. Uh, as a result of this, Jan wound up being on the base at the NCO club, the non-commissioned officer club, uh, right at the time that Andre was there. And, you know, he sees this girl, has no idea who it is. And just sort of starts pouring out his heart to her about how he lost his, his best friend and so forth, not realizing, like, this is his best friend's sister. And, and you know, they just sort of bonded and, and, and hit it off. And four months later, they were getting married at the base chapel there. 
Um, and again, just a wonderful story of how God takes the bad, yet works it for good, you know, and their marriage is still thriving and, and wonderful, and, and they're blessed to have one another. Again, just another example. And we see it all over the place. I'm sure most of us can look in our own lives or elsewhere in history and just see God doing that, taking the bad and working it for good. Uh, that's just who God is. It's how he operates. And I want us now to, to turn to uh, our last verse that we're going to look at here from Scripture, and it's Romans 8.28, one that you'd probably expect we'd go to if we're talking about God turning bad into good. Romans 8.28, and it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right. So for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, you could say for those who are truly Christians, for those who are in Christ, here's the reality. Right? All things work together for good. God is working everything together, the good, the bad, everything in between. He's working it all together for good for his people. That's the reality. Now, we're sort of particularly focusing on him working the bad for good. It's not hard to imagine how he works the good for good. Uh, but he works everything for good, including the bad stuff, the terrible stuff. He takes it and he works it all for the good of his people. That's just what he does Right? And I want us to just sort of cling to that truth, that promise from Scripture that, that God really, truly does do this. And I would say I want us to understand that the way in which God typically does this is working the bad, if we're sort of focusing on the bad. Again, he works everything, but kind of focusing on the bad. The way in which he works the bad for good in our lives is typically working it for spiritual good in our lives. Not to say that he can't work it for materialistic good in our lives. You could imagine a story, and I'm sure this is a reality for plenty of people out there who, who are Christians, where maybe they had a job and there were just lots of layoffs at the company and they were newer to the company, they wound up getting laid off. But as a result of that, then you know they would have stayed with that company, but because they got laid off, then they looked for other positions and wound up at a much better place that where they're so much happier and the pay's better and so forth and so on, you know, and how God took that bad thing, losing their job and worked it for good, but in a tangible way. Now, a better job with better financial compensation and so forth and so on. God can and does do that. But I would say more often than not, the way he takes things, again, particularly focusing on the bad and works it for good in our lives is, is for our spiritual good, that he takes that bad stuff that's happening in our lives and uses it to draw us closer to him into a more intimate and closer and deeper relationship with him to grow us in holiness of character and conduct, to grow us in faithfulness and obedience, in love for him, to mold us and grow us more and more into the likeness of Christ. I'd say typically that's how God takes the bad in our lives and works it uh, for good. But again, he's working all things together for good for his people. And again, if I think of sort of our big takeaway from this, I also want us to, to think of this, especially in the context of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. I've talked about we are living in, in sort of dark times. The church is more and more under attack, not to belabor that. It's not like I'm endlessly going to be emphasizing that, but recognizing that that means tough times for the church. Think of the early church. When the world was arrayed against the church, martyrdom was a reality. People were killed for being Christians. I'm not saying that's where things are in the U.S. at this point. It's not like it's that bad. But, but attacks against the church will be on the rise. Persecution will be on the rise. That means tough stuff is going to happen in our lives, right? So all the more I want us to, to remember is we're more likely to experience sort of hard times, trying times, to remember that God works it all, every bit of it, the good, the bad, everything in between. He works it all for good. 
And the reality is we're all going to go through those bad times in life where things maybe aren't going as smoothly as we'd like. Probably, I'd say, undoubtedly, even if you just look around the room, probably some of us here are sort of going through a tougher time in life. Maybe, though, for you, things are good right now. That's great. Praise God. But it's only a matter of time before some tough thing, some difficulty, something bad comes into our lives. We live in a broken, fallen world. That's a reality. And again, I just want us to cling to the truth of this verse, cling to this promise from Scripture that God works all things, not just the good, but even the bad, even the worst of the worst. He works it all for good for his people. And we should cling to that truth, that promise in all times, but especially when we're going through those tough times, we need to cling to it all the more tightly and recognize, even if I'm going through the toughest of things, I can take comfort and even joy in the knowledge that God's taking this bad stuff in my life and he's going to work it for good uh, and just to find comfort and peace and joy in that. And so let's cling to this promise that God truly does work all things for good for his people. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, you are, you're an amazing God. We see it all over the place here as you're just taking the bad and working it for good, whether it's Joseph's life, a terrible thing, sold into slavery by his own, own flesh and blood, and yet in an amazing way you worked it for good. Good for Joseph, second in command, second only to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. It worked it for good for so many that there was food for those in Egypt and, and the surrounding lands during seven years of famine. You, you spared lives as a result, worked it for abundant good. And all the other examples that we talked about as well, whether it's Paul under house arrest, uh, whether it was martyrdom in the early church, Andre and Jan and, and sort, sort of their story of how they came to meet one another uh, through the tragic death of, of Donnie, Jan's, uh, Jan's brother and, and Andre's best friend. We just see it all over the place, you taking the bad, working it for good. And we know that truth of Scripture, that promise of yours in Romans 8, 28. You truly do for your people, Lord. Those of us who are in Christ, who truly have saving faith in you, truly belong to you. You take everything, the good, the bad, everything in between, and you work it for our good. And what a wonderful truth that is. And may we cling to it at all times. Even when things are good, we want to cling to it and know it and delight in that promise but how much more so when, when things are not going so well, when things are, are bad and life and tough, how much more so we just need to cling to that promise of yours and know that whatever tough thing we're going through, you're using it and working it for good in our lives. And may we just truly find comfort and peace and joy in that fact, in that truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.